Happy Pride Month, creepy cats. Melissa is riding solo this week, discussing the murder of college student Jesse Valencia. Jesse was a confident, gay young man attending the University of Missouri, who was seemingly loved by all. However, with numerous leads piling up, police realize that they have a true murder mystery on their hands, and that the culprit might be closer than they realize. Please be aware that this episode will discuss murder in a graphic crime scene. Listener discretion is advised. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ew That's Creepy. Today we are doing something a little different because I can't actually say we. Jackie is on vacation this week, so it's just me, just Melissa today, but I am going to be talking about um, the theme that we picked this week is going to be we wanted to tell stories involving members of the LGBTQIA community. Um, It is June, meaning that it is Pride Month. And that is something that Jackie and I hold near and dear to our heart. Um, We always and always will support the LGBTQIA community and this podcast always will. So the story that I chose today is I wanted to tell a story that is a little bit well known, but it is still important to talk about um, the victim was a member of the LGBTQ community. And this story took place on June 5th, 2004. A young man was found partially naked and lying on the ground outside between two apartments at the University of Missouri. The young man was a college student at the university and was lying dead in between the two apartments with a deep cut to their neck. Medical examiners determined during the autopsy that the knife wound to the neck was so deep that it actually had scraped against the bone of the victim's spine. The odd thing about the victim's body also was that there was not defensive wounds. There were no cuts or anything like that to the fingers, but there was distinct bruising on the spine of his back and the center of the chest around the breastbone. That was odd because it was pretty large bruising, So it was something noticeable, but besides the bruising, there really was not any signs of the victim trying to defend themselves. Medical examiners kind of could determine, and police on the scene could determine that it seemed the victim was surprised and possibly attacked from behind while he was outside. In this small college town, homicides were next to impossible, so this really shocked the entire community. When police asked neighbors nearby and were kind of just asking around early on that day on June 5th. They did get information from neighbors that they awoke to arguing and the near, um, there was one neighbor who also said that around 3 a.m. they heard shouting coming from the apartment next to them. Specifically, they heard a male voice screaming, stop it. That neighbor said that they heard the yelling coming from the apartment of a college student named Jesse Valencia. 
Police then were able to determine that Jesse Valencia was indeed the victim that was lying in between the two apartments. So Jesse Valencia, he was a 23-year-old junior at the University of Missouri. Jesse grew up a happy, friendly child who was always smiling. Jesse's mother, uh, Linda, said that he always had many friends and children were just drawn to him because he was super friendly, smiling, uh, friendly to everyone. Jesse's mother, Linda, said that when he was 10 years old, he actually came out to his mother and said that he was gay. Jesse was crying and said that he was scared that his mother would hate him now because of his sexuality. But Linda has said that she would accept Jesse no matter what and that that didn't stop her from loving him. And from pretty early on, since he was 10, he was comfortable with his uh, sexuality and just comfortable with himself as a person and uh, who he was as a person. As Jesse grew up, he got into modeling and he was a very handsome young man, so he used his looks to do some photo shoots. But his real motivation in life was to become a lawyer. So after he graduated from high school, Jesse attended the University of Missouri. He was a journalism and a history major who wanted to use both degrees to go to law school after graduation. I read in another article that he was um, a political science major, so not 100% sure of the majors, but he was uh, clearly interested in politics and history and journalism, which he wanted to incorporate all of those things when he went to law school and became a lawyer after graduation. So that was Jesse's plan. At college, Jesse had numerous friends. He was popular around campus. When Linda, Jesse's mother, learned that he had passed on, she was very surprised because she knew her son to just be a friendly, vivacious young man. She was nervous on the day of the murder, unfortunately, because Jesse and Linda talked almost every single day. Um, Linda said that her son and her were very close, so she did have a bad feeling when Jesse didn't reach out and call her when he said he was going to. But besides that, Linda couldn't really provide any hard leads to the police or anything because she didn't know exactly who would have you know, who would have something out for Jesse. Linda did tell police, though, that it was odd because her son had always shared with her a premonition that he was going to die young. Linda said that Jesse, since he was about seven years old, said that he just knew he was going to die at a young age. But he always said that no matter what happened, she would be okay. And he just needed to make the most of his time while he was here. Which is very, very sad and heartbreaking because Jesse's premonition was correct and he did die at the age of 23. Police didn't have to wait long, though, to get their first lead because at the scene of the murder, they actually had an individual arrive who said that he was Jesse's ex-boyfriend. So... The day um, of the murder, when police were doing their investigation, Jack Barry arrived on the scene in a flood of tears, very upset, saying that Jesse was his ex-boyfriend, who they have recently broken up. 
He did admit to police that Jesse still was in love with him and still reached out to him asking to rekindle their relationship, but Jack had unfortunately already moved on with someone else and was no longer interested in a relationship with Jesse. When police asked Jack for his alibi, he did not have one. He just said that it was 3 a.m. and he was at home asleep. Police also were able to check Jesse's cell phone records, and they found that on the night of his murder, he had called Jack at 3 a.m., but Jack did not answer. So police brought that back to Jack, and they kind of said, we looked into this, and it doesn't really seem like you're telling us everything. So Jack admitted to police that he did awake at 3 a.m. on the night of Jesse's murder, And Jesse was knocking on his door and that Jesse had called him to basically wake him up. And he he basically knew that Jesse wanted to come over and talk to him about getting back together in their relationship. But Jack said that he just he didn't want to deal with that. He just that night didn't want to deal with ex-boyfriend drama. And so he didn't answer the door Jack's reaction to this admission of guilt and kind of this admission to ignoring Jesse that night, he was very obviously upset when he was telling police the story and telling police what he had done. Based on how upset he was and how genuine his reaction seemed to police, the police believed him and they decided that Jack was not a suspect. So they remove Jesse's ex-boyfriend, Jack, from their list of suspects, and they continue searching on to see who could have possibly done this. Early on, a theory was potentially, was this a hate crime? Was this driven by the fact that Jesse was gay? It was a small Missouri college town. They were actually preparing for their first ever Pride Festival scheduled the week after, And Jesse was known to be an outwardly gay young man. But because of how intense the crime was, police were still convinced that Jesse had to have known who did this to him. So they started to ask around between Jesse's friends and anyone he was close to at the University of Missouri. Several of Jesse's friends told police to look into another student at the university named Zev. This student was a friend of Jesse's, and the two were often seen hanging out. Friends of Jesse's were suspicious that Zev and Jesse were secretly involved in a relationship because Zev seemed a little uncomfortable in his own skin, but he was frequently hanging out with Jesse, who was so out and comfortable with his sexuality. So there were some people at the university who suspected that maybe Zeb and Jesse were secretly involved in a relationship. Police decided to bring Zev into questioning and um, just based on the fact that numerous people had given up his name. When they brought Zev in, he also did not have an alibi for the night of the murder. He told police that he was at home asleep And that was where he was at the time. So police obviously think that is suspicious that Zev doesn't have an alibi for the night. Besides, he was just at home asleep. Police decide to then put Zev under a stress test, a voice stress detector test, 
where they monitor a recording of his voice and analyze his stress levels to determine if he was lying about certain questions, kind of similar to a lie detector test. When police analyzed the results of the test, they determined that Zev was not telling the truth. Police then went to the home of Zev's parents because he still lived at home since he was in college, and they confirmed that Zev was sleeping at the house the night of the murder, and they claimed that there was no way he could have left without them noticing and killed Jesse and then returned back to their house. Police determined that they don't really have any evidence on Zev. There's just hearsay from friends and some stress in the voice detector test. So they just decide to continue on with their search and see if they can get um, more concrete evidence. Another suspect that Jesse's friends gave to police was a young man named Ed. Jesse and Ed had met a few days prior to the murder and they quickly hit it off and joined into a, a casual relationship. Friends actually said that on the night of Jesse's murder, he and Ed attended a college party together. The two were even seen leaving the party together around 3 a.m. Or I'm sorry, shortly before 3 a.m. And they were heading towards Jesse's apartment when people saw them leaving. Police are now very suspicious of Ed because he's the last known person to be seen with Jesse on the night of his murder. And they know that um, he will at least have some good information for them. Police call Ed in for an interview. Ed does confirm that he was with Jesse at the party on the night of the murder and that the two did leave the party together. However, Ed says that they parted ways before returning to Jesse's apartment and that they decided to talk on the phone as they both walked home. Ed also said that he lived with a roommate who was still awake and could confirm that Ed did come home shortly after he left the party. Everything Ed had told police did check out. The cell phone records matched Ed's account of the night, and the roommate also backed up Ed's story that he entered the house late at night after the party. Police are still investigating again. They have now crossed off the ex-boyfriend. They have now crossed off the last person who was seen with him. They crossed off kind of the strange friend that police were giving up. Now, another name is again brought into the mix. A young, man, a young man named Andy. Andy came forward to police admitting that he and Jesse had a friends with benefits type of relationship. Andy was not coming forward with an admission of guilt, but he was coming forward to give the police a tip. So, Andy tells police that about two to three weeks prior to Jesse's murder, Andy had been at the, Jesse's house for a casual sexual encounter. Andy told investigators that while he was there, the two were interrupted by a knock on the door. When Jesse answered, it was a local police officer, which Andy was obviously taken aback because he didn't expect a police officer to just randomly knock on the door in the middle of their sexual encounter. But Jesse calmed Andy down and said that it was okay and that the officer was a friend of his. And Andy told officers, or he told the police investigators that before he knew it, he, Jesse, and this police officer were involved in a sexual encounter, the three of them. 
After the sexual encounter, the police officer told both Jesse and Andy that no one could know about this little tryst and it needed to remain a secret. Investigators were stunned at this because this was the Columbia Police Department in Missouri that it was small, they knew everyone, and they did not think that anyone on the police force would behave in this type of behavior, and they were clearly at work since they showed up in a uniform. They asked Andy to come to a back room where they kept photographs of all the police officers working at the force. When they got to the back room, Andy is trembling and says that he doesn't need to look through the book anymore because he actually just passed the police officer in question on the way over to the room. And the officer in question that he just passed in the hallway was Stephen Rios, a 27-year-old married police officer. When the deputy was told that Officer Steve could potentially be involved, the police deputy, who's often spoken up in interviews, says that she did not believe it was Steve Rios at all who could have been this officer. She claimed there was no way that Steve Rios could be involved in a sexual affair with Jesse because he had a beautiful wife who just gave birth to their first child, let alone would he have been the individual who would have murdered Jesse, which is basically what Andy was offering up. Police decide to dive into this rumor that Andy brought up a little bit further. Upon investigation, Jesse's mother also could confirm that Jesse told her he was having encounters with a police officer. So, Jesse's mother, Linda, tells investigators that on April 18th, 2004, Jesse was at a house party hosted by one of his friends at the University of Missouri. Police officers, one of them being Stephen Rios, arrived at the party to show up due to the noise and things like that typical college party bust and Jesse being a smart outspoken young man who wanted to be a lawyer asked the officers if they had probable cause to come into the house but Jesse ended up getting arrested for talking back to the police and he was on his way to the station when officer Stephen Rios who was driving him started to ask him questions and then it turned into questions more about his personal life And Jesse told his mom he thought that was a little odd because he was not thinking a police officer should be asking him such personal questions that didn't really matter regarding the case that was just being created for the party. The following day, Officer Rios actually showed up at Jesse's apartment and said that he had a few more questions for him. Which Jesse again told his mother it was weird because his questions were just personal questions. Trying to get to know me, it wasn't about the party or about what I said regarding probable cause. After that day, Officer Stephen Rios proceeded to show up at Jesse's apartment and find him around campus. Um, And it is clear that Jesse told friends that he and Officer Stephen Rios became engaged in a sexual relationship. The relationship was casual, and Officer Stephen Rios would come over to Jesse's apartment during the week for casual sex. He would even come over sometimes when he was supposed to be on the job. He would come over in his uniform when he was supposed to be doing local patrols. 
A few weeks after their relationship started, Jesse ended up having his court summons for the case um, when he was outspoken with the police. He was infuriated to learn that the charges against him filed by Officer Rios still stood. Jesse was clearly under the assumption that because of his relationship with Officer Rios, he would have the case thrown out. Jesse also around this time was getting suspicious that Officer Rios was married and not really being as honest with him. In the following days after the court summons, Jesse told friends that the next time he saw Officer Rios, he was going to threaten to tell the chief of police about their affair. So basically, Jesse now is intending on kind of making some threats towards Officer Rios, saying, I'm going to go public with our affair unless you can um, kind of get me out of this court summons and this court case that you, you brought up against me. With all of these incriminating statements piling up, investigators decide to bring their own Officer Rios in for questioning, and they just want to get to the bottom of these rumors. They just want to know, first of all, was Officer Steven Rios having an affair with this college student? And if he was, where was Officer Rios on the night of Jesse's murder? So, Officer Steven Rios comes in for interrogation, and he is just shocked at the allegations of having an affair with Jesse Valencia. He says he he did know Jesse from their interaction at the college party and the pending case against Jesse, but he was not admitting to a relationship. After further pushing and further interrogating, Stephen Rios finally admitted that he was having a sexual relationship with Jesse, but he did not admit to being involved in the murder. He said he had no knowledge of the crime, and he just was um, involved in the sa- casual sexual relationship. He did admit that he was on the scene the day of the murder, assisting other officers with the crime. So he did admit that, that he was on the scene and he showed up to assist but claimed he was just doing his job and that he didn't know that, you know, it was Jesse and things like that. He didn't realize, you know, that it was the same person he had a sexual encounter with. So Rios claimed that on the night of the murder, he finished up work and went out for drinks with other officers He claimed that there were other police officers who were drinking on top of a parking lot garage, and that is what he did after he finished up work at around 3 a.m. Police, they didn't really have any evidence. Although Officer Rios admitted to having a sexual affair, he didn't admit to anything else, and they didn't have anything else besides just the fact that he is involved in this um, homosexual affair. So... Shortly after the interview, though, as in the same day of the interview, later on, a Columbia police captain received a phone call from Stephen Rios, who stated that he had done something bad and admitted to buying a shotgun with the intentions of killing himself. The police captain, they clearly knew that that was what Stephen Rios was intending when he was saying, I bought a shotgun and he started to go to Kansas City. The police managed to calm Rios down and convinced him to return to Columbia to sort things out. 
When Rios returned, he was placed into protective custody and then put into a mental facility to undergo some evaluations. Shortly after his entering in at the mental facility, Stephen Rios managed to escape and he ran to a rooftop where he threatened to jump from the rooftop and end his life. Some of this was actually caught on television and there were some news reports regarding this because he was just kind of sitting on top of the roof and threatening to jump. Police again were able to calm him down and Stephen was removed from the rooftop without harming himself or others. Stephen Rios continued to stay at the mental facility while police were um, finally able to receive results of DNA that they took from Jesse's body. So now Stephen Rios is being held at the mental facility and police get results from DNA that they had sent when they first swabbed Jesse's body the day of the murder. The DNA that they had were they had some hairs that were on Jesse's body. Those hairs were actually confirmed to be arm hairs that were from Stephen Rios. There was also DNA evidence that was under Jesse's fingernails which was confirmed to, again, be from Stephen Rios. Police also realized that the distinct bruising on Jesse's back and his chest bone was most likely caused from a chokehold that Columbia police officers are taught during their training. So they put two and two together based on how large the bruising was and how it was just in significant areas that Stephen Rios most likely came up from behind Jesse and put him into a chokehold that they learned during the police academy. Now that they finally have concrete evidence with the DNA, police place Stephen Rios under arrest for the murder of Jesse Valencia. During Stephen Rios's trial, prosecutors presented their theory that on the night of Jesse's murder, Officer Rios went over to Jesse's apartment after his shift at work to engage in another sexual encounter. While he was there, Jesse threatened to expose their affair to the chief of police. Clearly, he was still upset about the court summons and was threatening to expose Officer Rios. Prosecutors believe a fight ensued where Jesse tried to run from his apartment in just his shorts, which was why he was found partially naked. Police alleged that Officer Rios caught up to Jesse, grabbed him from behind, placed him into a chokehold, then proceeded to slit Jesse's throat and run from the scene. Prosecutors painted a picture of Stephen Rios using his badge to gain edge over Jesse throughout their relationship because he was kind of leading Jesse on to the fact that the court summons and things like that would be thrown out. And that little edge over Jesse was really what was persuading him to continue on with the sexual relationship. Prosecutors also pointed out that Rios was not guilty when police first brought him into questioning. However, after that, he threatened to commit suicide and then again threatened to commit suicide at the mental facility before the DNA results came back. So prosecutors bring up the question of, If Rios was innocent, why, when he was first interrogated and then when they, when he was sent to the mental facility, was he trying to commit suicide? At that time, they didn't have DNA evidence against him. 
So it was pretty incriminating that he was continuing to threaten to commit suicide rather than holding his ground and saying that he didn't do it. And prosecutors did bring that up and use that against him in his trial. The one obvious problem, though, that the prosecutors faced was that Stephen obviously was a police officer, someone that the community trusted with their lives and with their safety. It was also 2005 at the time, and homosexuality in Missouri was not completely accepted. Locals in the town were having a hard time believing that this newly married police officer with a pretty wife at home taking care of their young baby would be out at the same time having sex with a young male college student. So this was something that it was a little bit hard to believe in 2005 that a young, handsome police officer who was married with a child could also be having a homosexual relationship on the side. The defense maintained that there was not actual DNA evidence proving that Officer Rios murdered Jesse that night. Rios maintained his alibi that he was miles away on a rooftop party with other officers during the time. His defense claimed that the arm hairs could have transferred over in a previous encounter and that the fact that the arm hairs and the DNA were there did not prove that Officer Rios murdered Jesse. The defense even claimed that Jesse was known to have bad hygiene and the DNA could have been left from a previous encounter. The DNA also attempted to paint Jesse as a promiscuous gay man who had numerous sexual encounters with men around campus. The defense seemed to believe that Jesse's behavior with relationships was reckless and that because he often spoke his mind, these factors could have played a role in his death. Classic victim shaming, in my opinion. I'll just throw that out there. So that is really where the defense was standing with Stephen Rios and their opinions on Jesse Valencia. In the end, the jury found Stephen Rios guilty on charges of first-degree murder in 2005 and also armed criminal action for the use of a knife in the crime. Prosecutors pushed for a double-life sentence as well, attempting to set an example for future police officers intending on breaking their duties. So prosecutors were really pushing for two life sentences since the crimes were so heinous and since Stephen Rios was an officer at the time. During his sentencing, Stephen Rios wept and stared at his wife who was in the crowd. He mouthed out, I love you, which she mouthed out, I love you too. His wife and his family maintained Stephen's innocence throughout the trial Stephen was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Following his conviction, Special Prosecutor Morley Swingle, who worked on the case, spoke out alleging that there was even further evidence against Stephen Rios that could not be presented in court. Some evidence Swingle discussed was admissions from several friends that Jesse believed he was originally involved with Ted Anderson and that Stephen Rios once had wore a name tag with Ted on it. So basically, Jesse was telling his friends that he thought Stephen was tricking him from the beginning, saying he was Ted Anderson and not even giving his real name. Swingle also alleged that women had come forward after the trial, 
or I'm sorry, before the trial, accusing Officer Rios of asking for sex after they were arrested. So Swingle said that they had intentions of bringing these women on the stand if need be, but they didn't even really need to bring them on the stand. Following the conviction in 2005, the verdict was actually overturned when court documents proved that some statements used during trial were claims of hearsay. And that was kind of true that many of the claims against Stephen Rios were just claims against Rios that were brought up by Jesse's friends. And even though the claims could have been spoken by Jesse himself, these weren't really facts. And so the hearsay did seem to stand. In 2008, Stephen Rios was retried for the murder of Jesse Valencia. And this time he was convicted of second degree murder and again convicted of armed criminal action. The jury claimed that there was not evidence presented that Stephen Rios planned to kill Jesse Valencia prior to the night of the event, and rather that it occurred during the heat of their argument when Jesse was threatening to reveal their relationship. In 2009, Rios was sentenced to life in prison plus 23 years with the possibility of parole. Stephen Rios has always maintained his innocence sticking to his original story that he was at a party on a rooftop and that he did not commit this crime. He has said in interviews with Dateline that the people who are important to him still believe in his innocence, and that's all that really matters to him. He is currently serving time at a South Dakota prison where he will serve the rest of his sentence. Today, Linda Valencia keeps her son Jesse's memory alive by remembering the amazing, friendly, intelligent person that he was. Linda wants to remember her son by who he was rather than by just this small town scandal. And with that being said, I think it's important to emphasize that Jesse Valencia was a beautiful, intelligent, amazing, young, confidently gay man who was on a path to just do incredible things in life. And it's not fair that Jesse, his life is sometimes overshadowed by the scandals of Officer Stephen Rios. You know, when you talk about this case, the first thing that people say isn't the fact that a young man was killed solely because of a homosexual relationship, most people first think of the scandal of Officer Stephen Rios using his badge to kind of manipulate others into sex and then to hide from the law when his own department was investigating this murder. So it's really sad that it seems that the crimes against the gay community here are kind of overshadowed by the scandal of it being a police officer who did this. And in my opinion, I think that this trial kind of highlights some of the small town beliefs of gay men fitting this certain fun loving, vivacious stereotype that we see on TV. And in some ways, that's true. And Jesse was a fun loving, vivacious person. But at the same time, That's Jesse's personality as a human being. That's not just the personality of every gay man. And in my opinion, I think that some of the defense in 2005 really tried to victim blame Jesse for for being this vivacious gay man. 
And I think they kind of relied on some of their biases of the gay community that they knew from the media rather than looking inward at who in the community could have attacked Jesse and why. But either way, the murder of Jesse Valencia permanently changed the small college town in Missouri and changed the University of Missouri and their opinions of gay relationships. This murder opened the community's eyes to how how common homosexual relationships really are and how members of the LGBTQ community come in all shapes, sizes, ages, colors, etc. It's not just outspoken, young, gay, attractive men. You know, there are many different shades and colors of being part of the LGBTQ community, so... I think that, um, obviously now that is more accepted, but in 2005, I think that is why this case was so incredibly controversial and so scandalous was because of all those different factors. But let us remember Jesse for the amazing individual he was. He had so many goals. He was outspoken. He stuck up for others. Clearly, like, with the event started this entire thing with the party, He spoke up on behalf of others, and he was truly just an amazing, beautiful young man. There is many shows on this. There's Dateline. There is the show An Unexpected Killer on Oxygen. The show Forbidden Dying for Love on ID. Some of them kind of glamorize this police officer and gay young man relationship, but um, I'll let you guys be the judge, so... If you guys want to watch those shows and get more information on this, um, I will link them in the description. And I just want to say that I hope everyone has a great Pride Month. And let's not forget about the many, many, many victims in the LGBTQ community who have been targeted because of their relationships, because of who they choose to love, or those who have been killed to hide a secret. So I wish you guys all have a happy, happy Pride Month. Stay safe out there. Let us know what you think about this guy's story. And I hope I did okay doing it all by myself. Jackie, come back. Help me. I miss you. Let me know what you guys think about the solo episode. I love you all so much. Extra love to our LGBTQIA community during the month of June and all year long. Happy Pride. And you, that's creepy. Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at you, that's creepy podcast, or send us an email at you, that's creepy podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats.